You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started, and uh, we are back in the book of 1 Samuel, so if you would, when you get time, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Before we start, I'd just like to open in prayer and ask the Lord to bless his word and to be glorified as we study his word and we just want to offer this up to him. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning for the freedom to be able to worship collectively and for the privilege and honor of being able to examine your word. And Father, we just ask this morning as we begin this text that you would grant us the illumination and understanding of what your servants did in the Old Testament as they opened our eyes to the essence of Christ. And the forerunners that came in the Old Testament to proclaim that, even though it was dimly understood, we thank you, Lord, for your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask now that you would guide us and that you would be glorified through the teaching and the proclamation of your word. We just ask this in his name. Amen. Well, welcome to Kootenai Community Church and uh, Adult Sunday School. And as I mentioned, we're back in 1 Samuel. So last week I did the overview or introduction to 1 and 2 Samuel, which by God's grace, we're going to work through for probably next couple of years. So so I'd like to read the first few verses here so we can have an understanding of the characters that God points out to us in this first and second verse. Now there was a certain man from Ramah, Theim, Zophan, from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham. Actually, it's pronounced Jeroham. And the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zaph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all their sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. She would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? We'll stop there for today. As we look at the setting of where Elkanah was 
in the hill country of Ephraim. And we want to look at that in relationship to Silo. I asked Jim because he and Deidre had an opportunity last year to visit the Holy Land. So he has prepared uh, a short slideshow and he's going to give us a view of just the exact location that we're looking at currently. So if you uh, have any questions following the slideshow, Jim would be glad to answer them. Okay, can everybody see this if I hold it like this? Okay. <laughs> All right, I guess we're going to wait for it to warm up. Okay, so it wasn't last year. It was two years ago now in February that Deidre and I went to Israel. And the place that I'm going to show you is Shiloh. There are <clears throat> some locations in Israel where the Jews will say this happened and the Muslims will say, no, it never happened. It didn't happen there and it didn't happen like that. There are other locations where Protestants will say this is the location of this and the Catholics will say, no, that never happened. It doesn't happen that way. Then there are other locations where... Uh, Jews and Christians will agree that something happened and the Muslims will disagree. And then there are some locations where whether you are a Jew, a Muslim, uh, a Christian, a Catholic, or a Protestant, or an atheist, you admit that this is the location of that because there are some locations where it's just beyond any reasonable, any shadow of a doubt that this is the place where such and such happened. So what you're about to see is the is Shiloh. You can turn them all off if you want. It's the city of Shiloh. So this is the, um, this is coming out of the, you can see the, the sort of the uh, terrain there. And the place where I'm going to show you here in a second is right on this side of this mountain right up here. And there is a visitor center right over here just off of the screen. So this is coming out of the parking lot, sort of walking back toward the ancient city of Shiloh to the visitor center. And as you make your way there toward the, toward the location where the tabernacle stood, there are all kinds of of these places where there were houses and the walls are still there. They've been buried over time with dirt and other rock, but they've excavated certain portions of the living quarters of the people who lived at Shiloh. And you could be looking at houses in which Samuel and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and, and those men walked or even lived and knew people in there at that time. There's some more remnants of that. So what they would do is they would have these locations, they would call them tells or mounts, and they, were, they built cities on hills. And up on, on, they would build a city up on a hilltop, and then they would put a wall all the way around it to protect them. And there was plenty of rock, as you can see. Israel is just one country full of rock, so you didn't have to walk more than 10 feet to grab a rock for your wall. And they would build these walls around them, and then inside of that they would have, sometimes as part of the exterior wall, they would have these uh, homes where the remnants of the walls can still be seen to this day. There are other houses around ancient Shiloh. This is walking up to the visitor center there. There's another shot of the visitor center, and you can see kind of the terrain. It's sort of a, a hilly country, not mountainous like we're used to being up in the mountains, but just these hills and valleys all the way around. Here's a picture of part of the Canaanite wall. So this is a wall structure that would have been there before the children of Israel came into the land of promise. That would have been built by the Canaanites before them, hundreds of years before Israel occupied the land, and the remnants of those walls around that city are still there to this day. There's another part of the city wall. So I showed you in that first picture, you're walking up toward the visitor center, and you kind of get past this knoll. When you go up into the visitor center, they had this room that was like, I don't know, it was 180 degrees sort of this panoramic room, and you sat in this little theater, it's a couple rows deep, and you'd sit in this theater, and you're looking out the windows of around across ancient Shiloh, so you can see where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the tabernacle was, and the homes, and then they turn on these, they put these screens down across the windows, and then they project onto that, the semi-transparent screen, they would project onto that what ancient Shiloh would have looked like. So sitting there, you can see through the screen, with like superimposed on the buildings would have been right where right where it was and where the ark was and the tabernacle. So this is a picture of where the ark of the covenant stood and where the tabernacle was. So on the back side of that visitor's center, you kind of go down from the hill just a little bit and there's a, a flat spot. And that's where the tabernacle stood for 369 years. So everything that Jess is talking about in 1 Samuel 
This is where the tabernacle was. This is where Hannah was, where Elkanah was, where Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and Samuel. This is where they ministered. I'm going to turn down the volume, but just so you can see kind of a panoramic of the whole area there. There's houses off to the left there where those white things were at. Those are current excavations going on. So they had that area covered where the tabernacle stood. Right there is where the Ark of the Covenant sat. Uh, yeah. That's the visitor center behind it. And then all around that area, around that visitor center, that hotel, the, the, the whole tell, T-E-L, not hotel, but the whole tell, which is the whole mountain, around that entire mountain would have been where the houses and the walls were at. The tabernacle? It was the, the one described in Leviticus with the, the porpoise skins and the layers. And that's me standing right where the Ark of the Covenant stood for 300 years. So that is Shiloh. Any questions? Yes? Uh, I would say that it probably was. The only, the only irrigation that the land of Israel has is the Jordan River, which comes, starts in the north and runs all the way down into the Dead Sea. So everything around that is very lush and green. And the further south you get, this is due north of Jerusalem. Um, and the further south you get, the drier it gets as you get down into the peninsula and the Arab desert, the arid desert there. Um, down by the Dead Sea is where David hid with his mighty men while Saul was chasing for him. And this is north of Jerusalem. It's still dry there because once you get up out of the, the valley that the Jordan River flows through, it gets very dry and very quickly. But that entire valley that the Jordan River flows through, and it's big, that's the, the Valley of Armageddon is in there, and, and uh, it's just massive wide. It's lush and green, and there's date trees there and agriculture that's crazy how, how lush and beautiful it is. Uh, just what would rain, and I don't know what that would be. Yeah. Sorry. This was in February. Yeah. Yes. Uh, no, I don't know that what the population was. It seems awfully desolate. Is that populated now? There is next to that, um, and you could see it in one of the slides that I was looking at. Um, So you can see there, there's some cities or little tiny towns that are around there. There's one up on the hillside to the left. And those are Israelite cities? Yep. Yep. No, I don't. It is, but everything is barren except for where the people live. And it's, it's not like we... we this was their life. That's what it was like for them. And they just existed. Even down where David lived with his mighty men, you go out there and you think, how, would, how could anybody live in this area? But they did. I would imagine that they dug wells. There was a lot of places where they're still functioning wells to this day. Like Jacob's well in Samaria, you can go down and see that. There was another well that uh, either Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, which I can't remember which one of them, they dug, and we looked down into that well. That's still there to this day. There's wells all over the place, old rock encased structures that they would get water out of. Any other questions? Would that be considered uh, the area where today is considered Aramea at this point? Or? Would it be considered Aramea? That's today. No, it's in Israel. Okay. The, the whole land of Israel is very arid. Like when we, one of the first things we did when we got there was to go up to the north end of the land of Israel and we went up to the Golan Heights where there's war constantly between Hezbollah and Israel and they're bombing back and forth. And, and while we were up in the Golan Heights, we went to the headwaters of the Jordan River and it's right up next to the border of Israel and uh, Lebanon. We were within probably five miles of the border of Lebanon. And that's the area that they fight over when they're fighting over um, the northern territory of Israel. 
at the headwaters of the Jordan River, you're standing in a very lush area, but you can stand in this location and watch water bubble out of the ground three feet in front of you. And there's these springs that the water just bubbles up out of the ground year round. And it's like, it comes from nowhere. You look around, there's, there's no rivers, there's nothing. It's just this area where the water comes up out of the ground. Like God has turned a spigot on down underneath the earth and the water comes up out of the ground in all these different locations and all kind of goes into the Jordan River and it flows year round down the Jordan River into the Dead Sea. Well, the Arabs know that if they can capture the headwaters of the Jordan River, they can destroy that spring or divert it or pollute it and it would starve the entire nation of Israel. The only reason they exist is because the Jordan, the only reason they can exist is because the Jordan River is there. They can be a prosperous and productive and agricultural society because of the Jordan River. And if they could turn off that spigot at the north end of that, they would starve the entire nation. That is why everybody fights over the headwaters up by Lebanon of the Jordan River. It's because the existence of the nation of Israel depends upon that river as it is today. So everywhere else is very arid and dry, very rocky, small shrubs and small bushes. It's not desert like you think Sahara, but it, it is very rocky and dry. Yeah, Peter. How long were you there? Uh, ten days. Ten days? Was it ten days? Ten Nine. Seven days of two rain and two days of Yeah. Do you have any photos of the Jordan in the area that's full of... The Jordan in the area, just asked if I have any photos of the Jordan River. Yes, I did. I got tons of photos of everything, but not prepared for this. Right. It, it almost makes you think of when Moses struck the rock and the water came right up out of the rock as if there was a, a, a well underneath of it, yes. Okay, anything else? Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope that kind of helps give you some picture of what the whole terrain around there looks like. There's a lot about the nation of Israel that when we were going through there where I told Deidre, I have in my mind what the road to Emmaus looks like when the disciples walked it. You know, I have in my mind what the valley of where David killed Goliath looked like. Yeah, no, it doesn't look, everything is like the opposite of what I thought it was in, at every turn. Everything I thought, I thought in my head what it looked like, it was not that, something totally different. Right. So in the first verses here, um, this introduces us to a man named Elkanah, which means... God has created. We also learn from his place of origin, as well as his lineage, his marital status. Now, there was a certain man from Ramathaean Zophen, from the hill country of Jeroham, the son of Elihu. Ramathaean, which means twin heights, was the home of Elkanah. Ramathaim is also located in the hill country of Ephraim. That was according to Jim. Is that the understanding? That's why I asked. One of the historians said that the Ramathaim is located in the hill country of Ephraim. Oh, he's... Some historians consider Ramathaean a variation of Rama Height, a town which has given, was given to the tribe of Benjamin in Joshua 18, verse 25. Other scholars suggest that the location is as Arimathea in the New Testament is today, which I'm not sure if it is or not. At this point, I would like to ask uh, if you had any more questions regarding the location that Jim uh, explained with the photos. We saw how desolate it was, and yet, as he shared with us, when you get down in the valley near Jordan River, it's lush. Also, I wanted to give you a general idea of the physical area which we consider Israel. The information I got or received, Cornell shared with me, and he said that some modern archaeologists that are giving a basic comp uh, comparative of Judah and Israel 
excluding the Phoenician territories on the shore of the Mediterranean, they said that it did not exceed 13,000 square miles, which is half the size of West Virginia, of which the Kingdom of Israel encompassed only about 9,300 square miles, not any larger than the state of Vermont. So we get a, a, an idea of what Israel was in the physical, <coughs> excuse me, physical proximity of Shiloh. In verse 2, it says, He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, last week, as I was doing the introduction, I said that we looked at the Old Testament practice of polygamy that was practiced in the Old Testament, which was not a norm. It was not established by God. We see in Genesis chapter 2, where God gives the pattern for marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So although polygamy was practiced, it was not God's design. Israel accepted that practice, and however, as we consider this, it was intended by God for man and woman to be joined together until death do them part. Deuteronomy says this, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons. If the firstborn son belongs to the unloved one, then it shall be in the day he wills what he is, has two sons. He cannot make the son of the loved firstborn before the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. In other words, you're talking about the heritage and who is going to be the heir. And because he has two wives, the first wife, even though she's the unloved wife, her offspring will have an inheritance. That is the priority that is outlined when there's two wives. But then he goes on and says, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving them a double portion of all that he has. So he's going to receive a double portion of the inheritance. For it is in the beginning of his strength, to him belongs the right of the firstborn. So we know the firstborn in the families in this culture, in the ancient culture, this was what they did. The firstborn would be the heir, firstborn male. <clears throat> As we continue in verse 2, Elkanah's geology, excuse me, genealogy, reveals something very important about his heritage. He lists four generations. The son of Jehoaham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, and the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. First Chronicles says this in chapter 6. The sons of Kohath were <clears throat> Amdenadab, his son, Asher, his son, Elkanah, his son, Ebesoph, his son, Aser, his son, Tohath, his son, Uriel, his son, Uzziah, his son, Shaul, his son, <clears throat> as for Elkanah, the sons of Elkanah were Zophai, his son Nathan, Eliab, Jeroham, Elkanah, his son, the sons of Samuel were Joel, the firstborn, Abijah, the second, and Miriel, and Libni, his son. And then he names this person, Shimei. I want you to remember that name because when we progress in 1 Samuel, he's going to appear, and uh, he causes quite a scene against David. 
We'll look at that when we reach that text. Elkanah was from the family of Kohath, the son of Levi. Now this means that these were Levites. The Kohathites were the ones of the three major lines in the tribe of Levi. This is important because Moses and Aaron and the Kohathites, according to 1 Chronicles, the sons of Kohath were signed the responsibility of the most sacred furnishings of the tabernacle, including the Ark of the Covenant. When Israel would move their camps, the Kohathites would take and disassemble the Holy of Holies and transport the Ark and all the sacred utensils according to the procedures laid out for them by God. Once Israel occupied the promised land permanently and the tabernacle was finally situated at Shiloh, the Kohathites seem to have devoted themselves to other priestly functions, especially leading music, prayer, and praise in the tabernacle. Thus, one of Elkanah's close ancestors was known as Haman, the singer, according to 1 Chronicles 6.33. The Levites were the only tribe in Israel allotted no independent territory. God did not assign or give them any specific territory because they were the priestly tribe and the Lord himself was their inheritance. When the land of Israel was divided and distributed among the 12 tribes, the Levites were scattered throughout the whole nation of Israel. They were given small plots of pasture land to cultivate in selected cities throughout Israel. Elkanah's ancestors, probably as far back as the earliest generations after the conquest of Canaan, had come among the tribe of Ephraim. That's why uh, Zuf, uh, Elkanah's ancestor, is called an Ephraimite, even though this was clearly a family of Kohathites from the tribe of Levi. And I know there's a lot of names here of lineage, but these are key people in this point in time in history. So we want to, I wanted to at least give you the names and their heritage and their lineage so that we get a picture of what God is addressing here in 1 Samuel. <clears throat> Men from the tribe of Levi would take turns every year for a few weeks at a time, serving in the tabernacle. In those days, the tabernacle was situated at Shiloh, that very picture that Jim showed in that flat spot where he stood, that was the precise location of the tabernacle. <clears throat> Since the Levites had this duty to minister in the tabernacle, taking them away from their land and homes for an extended period each time of the year, each one of them had a specific period of time during a year in which they would take that responsibility. Their income was supplemented by the tithes collected from all of Israel. In one of the books that John MacArthur wrote, it was called 12 Extraordinary Women. This provides an important detail regarding Elkanah and Hannah, as well as the history surrounding their lineage. From this book, he gives us some interesting historical insights as not only to the family lineage of Elkanah, but also the Old Testament practices and the requirements of the Israelites in order to appear before the Lord three times a year. So part of their ceremony pra ceremonial practices were for them to take the journey from Shiloh to the place of worship, and that would take them about anywhere from one and a half to two days for that journey. It was about 25 miles away. So as we 
consider the distance that they walked and they went for the purpose of worship, we can see in the terrain what it was for them to travel. Hannah would faithfully travel with her husband Elkanah to the tabernacle each year to worship and offer sacrifices. Scripture portrays them as a devout family. As we think of this, during that time, Elkanah made regular trips to Shiloh to worship. The two sons of Eli, which were Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Now, this is something you need to understand. Hophni and Phinehas were the two worst priests in all of the history of Israel. They were wicked and perverted, and their father was Eli. Hophni, as well as Phinehas, were two of the worst. They were greedy and would illegally and sometimes forcibly take the best portion of the people's offerings for themselves. So the people would come in to worship and bring offerings, sacrificial offerings, and Phinehas and Hophni would take whatever they wanted from those offerings. So the people, of course, got to a point where they didn't even want to go there because they knew how corrupt these men were and Eli didn't do anything about it. <clears throat> they had turned the tabernacle into a licentious house. They bullied worshipers, showing contempt for God's law. The result was the people of Israel began to abhor bringing offerings to the Lord. Even though Eli knew of their wicked practices, he did not punish them for doing evil, even though he was the high priest. He says this in <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 24. Now, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear from the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God would not listen. <clears throat> Excuse me. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? These men were sinning against the Lord as well as people. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. He was going to punish them. He was going to punish them all. So we'll find that out as we go through that chapter. The visible manifestation of God's glory that once resided over the Ark of the Covenant was no longer there. It was gone. It had passed. The Ark itself had come to mean very little to the Israelites. Hophni and Phinehas treated the Ark itself with wicked irreverence. It's hard to imagine how wicked these men were, but they were blatantly evil. Eventually, Israel took the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines. They presumed, presumed that it would guarantee Israel a victory. But instead, the Philistines soundly defeated Israel. As a result, they captured the Ark, and the Ark was never returned again to the tabernacle at Shiloh. So that, once that was taken, when the Philistines conquered Israel, it left that place. <clears throat> the ark was eventually recovered and remained in neglect for about 100 years until David retrieved it and brought it to Jerusalem in preparation for the temple Solomon would build there. So it was that period of time that that Ark of the Covenant was gone and in enemy hands. In verses 4 through 7, it says, Hannah loved her husband. We know that she had a great love for her husband. <clears throat> now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship 
and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Yes? Yes, well, they lost it. Israel lost it in battle. Let me go back here. And it was removed from Shiloh. The ark was eventually recovered and remained in neglect for 100 years. No, it was, it was recovered, and then it was neglected for 100 years. I'm sorry, I should have cleared. Thank you, Peter. That question was by Peter, was it in enemy hands all this period of time until David recovered it? No, it was in the hands of someone who neglected it for 100 years, and it wasn't recovered until David recovered it. As we see from verses 4 through 7, Hannah loved her husband, Elkanah, and he also loved Hannah. When they made a peace offering to the Lord or a sacrifice, which the offerer roasted a sacrificial animal and partook of the feast unto the Lord. They would do that three times a year. Now this man would go up from the city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year as she went up to the house of the Lord. She would provoke her. She wept and would not eat. Obviously, Hannah's marriage was not perfect. That's an understatement. Mainly because of the jealousy and rivalry because of her husband's polygamy. Hannah seemed to be the first wife, and she was named first in verse 2. Apparently, Elkanah later married Phinehas because of Hannah's barrenness. As I mentioned earlier, that was sometimes practice in the ancient times, but was never acceptable. It was accepted by the Israelites, but was never, ever part of God's design. We remember how important it was in the culture to have children who could maintain the family inheritance and keep the tribal name and continue on with that family. This was the same reason that Abraham entered into a polygamous relationship with Hagar. It's most likely the main reason that we see so much polygamy in the Old Testament. Even though Hannah's marriage was affected by this polygamous marriage and the great amount of tension and sorrow it caused her, she still loved her husband, Elkanah, even as he loved her, as shown in verse 5. But Hannah, he would give a double portion For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Again, in MacArthur's book, he said this, Hannah's love for her husband is the first key to understanding her profound influence as a mother. Contrary to popular opinion, the most important characteristic of a godly mother is not her relationship with her children. It is her love for her husband. I thought that was a profound statement because that shows the nucleus of the family and the design that God has. A healthy home environment cannot be built exclusively on the parents loving their children. The properly situated family has marriage at the center. A family should not revolve around the children, end quote. 
So that was from the book that MacArthur had written. In verse 6, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. I can't imagine what Hannah went through emotionally with the torment and the constant provoking from Phineas. <clears throat> the chaos that it created by the folly of Elkan Elkanah's bigamy and hurtful provoking of Hannah by Phineas because of her constant bitter provoking which caused sorrow in Hannah's heart. In verse 7, it happened year after year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. She would, not, she would provoke her. So she wept and did not eat. The sorrow and affliction that was caused by Phinea and her children year after year was ongoing pain and sorrow. This was year after year that Hannah put up with this. And yet her focus was on the God that she loved and served. He was preeminent in her life. <clears throat> Even though Elkanah would express his love for Hannah as well as giving her double portions, she came to a point of not desiring even to eat. So she got to a point of so, such great sorrow overtaking her that she had no longer an appetite to eat. This also explains another reason uh, why Hannah was such an influence as a mother. As much as she loved Elkanah, she had an even greater love for God. In verse 8, it says this, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better than ten husbands? Well, there's a lot of variations <laughs> and commentators on that statement from Elkanah. So I'm going to give you the, some of the Reformed uh, views of this, and I'll give you some other commentators' view as well. As we look at this, uh, one of the commentaries by Kiel and Deltich offers this, this view says, Elkanah sought to comfort her grief by the affectionate appeal. Am I not better to you than ten husbands? Ten sons. I'm sorry. I misquoted that. This was an expression used in ancient literature to embellish the statement and give greater emphasis. So he was emphasizing according to this commentator, his, wasn't he greater than the possibility of even having ten sons? That would not be helpful to a woman who was hurting because she couldn't bear a son. Another Reformed commentator states this, which was, I felt was pretty interesting uh, understanding of the text. In one way, the last question by Elkanah could reflect his fear of his uh, that being rejected by Hannah because she had not had a child. The reference to the ten sons may have been an allusion to the sons born to Jacob during the period of Rachel's barrenness from Genesis 29, verses 31 in saying this, Elkanah may have been trying to tell Hannah, forgive me, that he loved her like Jacob loved Rachel. If this is true, then we can also perceive how the statement at the same time foreshadows a similar sovereign work which God will do as he did in Rachel. 
So it's always pointing to God's sovereignty throughout this entire book, which is illuminating who God is through his entire attributes. Hannah obviously had a deep and abiding love for God. Her spiritual passion was seen in the fervency of her prayer. She was a devout woman whose affections were set on heavenly things, not earthly things. And it wasn't about getting what she wanted. It was about self-sacrificial giving herself to the little life if God would give her this child. Centuries early, earlier, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, prayed, give me children or I'll die. That was her prayer. Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. And it goes on to tell of what happened as she prayed and worshipped at the place of worship. So we'll have to stop here. But we're going to see how Hannah is lifted up. And a relatively unknown in that period of time, Hannah demonstrates the great work that he can do through a woman who seeks him first in her life. This is an incredible uh, demonstration of another godly woman in Scripture and was one of the ones that MacArthur cited in his 12 Extraordinary Women, which is an excellent book. I used it for reference. My wife has that book, and it's one that I could recommend. So is there any questions before we close? Yes, Stephen. No, he wasn't actually promoting polygamy. He was telling them how that should be if they had two wives. So he wasn't elevating that of polygamy. He was just giving him instruction. If you did this, if you were a polygamist, I'm using paraphrase, then this is how you take care of the children and offspring of the first and the second. So that's what he was doing. So it... It isn't a contradiction of God's plan. It was something that they did, just like divorce. God didn't ordain it, but he allowed it. So as we look at this plan for marriage, it's monogamous. It's one man and one woman. So throughout Old Testament, we'll see continual polygamy, which is not ordained by God. So we have to either understand that this was guidance given to them because of what they did. So as a result of that, they couldn't, their own, their first love, their first wife could not have a son and receive the, the heir if it was not born before his other wife. So there's punishment in there if you look at that text because the, the error from the, the rightful error did not receive the inheritance. It was the error of the second, and that was a form of punishment. So it wasn't that he was rewarding them. He was just saying, if you did this, this is going to be the consequence, and this is what you do. So he gave them specifics on how to handle his estate. So does that make sense, sir? Yeah. Yes, Peter. So curious about the actual arrangement. Since it says that she was provoked once a year, I'm assuming that they didn't live these two wives did not they probably had completely separate yes. homes and separated. The only time they really 
is, yes, when they traveled. It appears that way. It doesn't delineate in Scripture, so we could only assume that this is when these attacks occurred. She provoked her all the time during their, uh, when they, their journey to worship and back, and whatever time they were together. It's adultery, yeah. Very good. Did you all hear that? Uh, Peter's question was, did they live in two separate locations? And scripture doesn't delineate that, but we would assume so. But the times that she was provoking Hannah was in the journey as they worshiped. So, okay, we're going to close for now. I ran over a bit, but thank you for your questions. And if you have further questions, we can examine those as we continue in this text. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the absolutes of your word. And we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that illuminates your word to us. We ask now as we continue our worship service that you would truly be glorified through the preaching of your word. And as we lift up song and praise to you, we do so, so that all that we do would bring glory to you. We ask now that we'd be able to continue to honor you as we carry on our worship service, and may you be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.